0: Um, okay, this summer, y'all, we are completing tonight our study through this. Uh, what I think is rather interesting historical discussion happened about three or four hundred years ago that really sparked the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Reformation had uh, one of its greatest thinkers uh, in the person of a man by the name of John Calvin. But not everybody was down with what some of the things that Calvin was saying, especially some of the Dutch uh, Church up in the Netherlands. And there was a man who rose up by the name of Jacob Arminius who objected to some of the teachings that he received. And Arminius began to peddle five fundamental issues about his understanding of how salvation happens. Well, there was a big church council that met, and the church council after they met decided that those teachings were not part of what the Bible taught about salvation. And in responding to those things, they issued the five points of Calvinism. Um, Again, my point that I've made over and over and over again this summer is First of all, it means that we're at a little bit of a disadvantage. First of all, because Calvin said a lot more than just the five points of Calvinism. That's not like the only things he could think of. You know, he he wasn't created enough to do six points of Calvinism. He just only had five, right? He ran out of creativity. No. Uh, Five points of Calvinism were a response to, at that time, what was believed to be heresy, Okay. Uh, the other thing that also makes it a little bit difficult is we also know that it's um, stated in something of a negative way. The five pounds of Calvinism kind of come into a mixture that's a bit negative. Now, some of you haven't been here before. You've been here for your first time tonight. You're saying, what are these things? Basically, the question that we've been dealing with this summer is this. Who does what in my salvation? If I'm going to call myself a Christian. Who is responsible for what? The five points of Calvinism can be neatly outlined into three things and then two on the ends. The first point and the last point have to do about man's state. The first point talks about man's sin problem that we call total depravity, that he's unable to do anything about his situation. The last point is what we'll talk about tonight called the perseverance of the saints. That basically says that if God is responsible for salvation, then he maintains that salvation regardless of a person's performance. In the middle, you have three points that have the first one to do about God the Father, the second one to do about God the Son, and the third one to do with God the Holy Spirit. Unconditional election, limited atonement, and tonight, irresistible grace, looking at the work of the Spirit. As He works in us. So tonight, since it's our last time, we've got to do two. So we've got a lot of information to dive into, so let's kind of uh, jump into it. Hey, I really liked it when we could do it last week where everybody sort of looked up a, a, a piece of scripture. Can we do that for a couple of passages again? I really like that. So y'all, let's have a sword drill. Um, I wish you had like a bag of candy that I could do to throw. Y'all want to do sword drills like where you, you had to look up your Bible verse as quickly as possible? Somebody's going to do what now? <laughs> The iPad counts. iPad counts. iPhone <laughs> counts. It's what I'm using. You know how it is. Um, okay. Uh, let's do 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. Just scream out, Miriam. Very good. Titus 3, 5. I'll get it. Matthew eleven 25. I'll get it. Got it. Yeah. Philippians 1, i get it. Okay. Uh, let's do 1 Peter 1, 2. Got it. Luke 8, 10. Got it. Acts 16, 14. Nobody wanted to do that one? People are anti Acts. Okay, Lewis, you take that one. Emily, uh, you take John 1, 12, and 13. Okay? Okay, look, the reason why I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the fourth point of Calvinism is because hopefully by now you've gotten the point. If mankind is unable in his sin to do anything about his salvation, then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are together, they are unified. They are on the same team to accomplish the same ends, namely the, f- the founding of a bride for the son. That's what the father is giving to his son. It's the best gift any father could give to a son, and that is a beautiful bride. And so human history is really about God fashioning this bride uh, for himself. And these are the elect of God. Those who have been elected of God, who have been um, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and Christ, and who finally have been drawn to themselves irresistibly by the Holy Spirit. Now, why do we use the word irresistible? Simply because if you give the rebellious human heart the opportunity to refuse something that came from God, the Calvinist has always said he'll do it every time. Does that make sense? Again, the Calvinist is something of a pessimist about human nature, <laughs> in that we look and say, "We believe that the Bible teaches enough about our problem in sin that if you gave us the opportunity to resist God's grace, we would do it every single time." That's the, that's the sort of idea there. And so therefore, the idea is is that when the Holy Spirit comes to effect our salvation that Jesus won on the cross, he does so uh, without stuttering right? He doesn't sort of try, 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 try. You know, the Holy Spirit's been calling. He's been gently, lightly rapping at the door of your heart, waiting for you to open it up and let him come in. The Bible says that you were born with an anti-God bias that is so uh, stout, that is so severe, that at every single gentle rapping, you would refuse it at every turn. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit has to work. Now, small little asterisk here at the bottom of the page before we look at these scripture passages, you do realize that that is the role of the three parts of the Trinity. I, I've said this before. What does each member of the Trinity do in salvation? You know how I often get this question from people is people will say, "You know, les, when I pray, I don't know, am I praying to God the Father? Am I praying to the Son? Am I praying to the Spirit?" And I always answer that question the same way. Well, it depends on what you're praying about. God, and this is my little, uh, my little um, what do you call it when they start with the same letter? Alliteration. alliteration. This is my little alliteration for this. God the Father is the author of salvation. When you are praising God for the fact that you're a Christian at all, and that He pulled you up out of the miry pit and set your feet on the rock, we direct those prayers of thanksgiving to God the Father. Secondly, the son is the accomplisher. I don't know if accomplisher is a word, but it starts with the letter A, so go with it. Um, In other words, the son is the one who goes out on behalf of the father to win the people back to himself. That's what we talked about last week, is that the, the sacrifice of the son actually won your salvation. He didn't just make it possible, contingent upon your believing in him, but he actually went out and won it. Thirdly, the Spirit is the Applier of Salvation. Look, y'all, the Spirit, and this is important for you to kind of get a grasp on, because you can find among Christian circles some fairly nutty ideas about the activity of the Spirit. And I'll be the first to tell you that in the Reformed tradition, uh, Reformed University Fellowship from the Reformation, uh, there's a fair, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a little bit of hesitance to sort of look at what we might call the... um, ecstatic gifts of the Spirit, the kinds that you see sort of on television, people falling out because the Spirit's them, people speaking in languages that they didn't grow up learning because of the Spirit. There's a bit of a hesitance coming from the Reformed tradition about that. And if you're interested in asking questions about that, that's what the Q&A is for uh, at the end of the night. Um, But setting that aside, a lot of people look and say, yeah, well, therefore, Reformed people don't really talk about the Spirit. Far from it. Look, y'all, the Holy Spirit is the active agent of God. That's my little phrase. If there was ever anything done in a positive direction in your life regarding your relationship to God, guess who did it? The Spirit was at work. Now look, there is no doubt that the Spirit is mysterious. Jesus says he's like the wind. Anybody ever tried to figure out the wind? You're not sure where it comes from. You're not sure where it's going. What is wind? you ever thought about that? What is, my kids, Daddy, what is wind? Can you explain it? Well, there's high pressure and low pressure. You can't say that to a kid. Um, <laughs> the Spirit's like that. He's mysterious, but you can always see his footsteps. And his footsteps constantly look like, you guessed it, Jesus. Jesus looked and said, look, I'm leaving the earth, okay? I'm leaving. I'm going to go and be with my Father in heaven to prepare a place for you, uh, and then I'm going to return for you after I've prepared that place for you. But... I'm going to send somebody that's better. And you're thinking, better than the physical Jesus being here? Yes, it's the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit can be and dwell the hearts of all people. Look, y'all, the last time that you thought to yourself, you know what, I need to write that person a note and apologize to them. You know what the truth is? I really got a ton of studying to do and I'm completely exhausted, but I need to be at a Bible study tonight. The last time that you got up in the morning and thought to yourself, you know what, I've fallen away from actually sitting down and reading God's word uh, on my own. I need to do that. The Spirit is working at that moment. He is the active agent of God. If something is happening in you that is in accordance with the Scripture and you are looking for Jesus and it's about Jesus, that's the Spirit working. Does that make sense? And so all the fourth point of Calvinism is saying is, is the Spirit comes to draw men unto himself and to apply the the gospel to people. This is part of our question uh, from last week. What does what what somebody did 2,000 years ago, some guy dying on a cross 2,000 years ago, what could that possibly have to do with me? Answer, the Spirit applies the power of that death to the life of the believer and transforms you, turns you into a new creature in Christ, Right? takes out your heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh, causes you to repent, right? Causes you to believe. Causes you to go out and find Jesus. Causes you to listen to the Word. Look, when you, that's what I always talk about when you come to Bible studies, you're hearing God's Word unfolded. Okay, let's throw out these scripture passages. Uh, who did I give uh, 1 Corinthians to? 2, 10 through 14. Give it to us there, Miriam. Nice and loud. Wait, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14? Is that what I said? I don't know. I think he said, Sorry, 2, 10 to 14. Just threw off your iPod, didn't I? We can come back to you. Titus 3, 5. I have that one. Um, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? The renewal of the Spirit. He's working. He renewed me. All right. First Corinthians 2. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in them? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Wow. Okay, we receive these things from the Spirit, but the natural man doesn't understand those things, because he's not spiritually minded. The Spirit has not worked on them yet. Okay. Did I get Matthew 11:25? You did. Okay. Find that one. Is it on 25? Uh, I think so. Read it. We'll see. <laughs> At that time, Jesus said, "I praise you, Father." Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Yeah. God revealed these things to the little children. They understood, they knew, they believed. Why? Because God revealed it. It was His initiative that was being taken. Uh, Philippians 129, is that what we did? Mm-hmm. Okay. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? For you it has been granted unto you to believe. Isn't that interesting? Your belief was granted to you. That's fascinating. First Peter 1 2. The elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, for grace to you and peace to you all the time. There it was. Did you hear the Trinitarian formula? Went Father, okay, elect. The Spirit, secondly, what, what did it say? The sanctifying word? Okay, and then the spirit, the, and, and then Jesus who provided his blood. That's it. Uh, author, accomplisher, applier. Good, good, good. What was the next one I did? Luke 8, 10? Did we do that one? Mm-hmm. Um, he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing, they may not see, they' those hearing, they may not understand. Ooh, okay, now we're getting a little edgy. Jesus looks and says that there are certain things that when I come and speak to them, I'm speaking in parables so that those that are under judgment will actually receive the, the fruits of that judgment. In other words, it was written that, that, that there's going to be a message that's going to go out and some people are going to see it, but they're not going to get it. But, the par- but to those to whom it has been revealed, he grants it. Okay, there's no other way to sort of take some of those passages. What do we give next? Acts sixteen fourteen. 14, we do that one? And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of uh, Tharatira, mm-hmm. one that worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened to give heed unto the things which were spoken by Paul. Interesting. Whose heart the Lord opened to give heed to respond. The Lord opened first, and then she responded. That's the order, y'all. He works, and then I work, right? I work because he has worked and is working. All right, John 1, 12 and 13, did I give that one? Is that yours, Emily? Yes, sir. Don't do that anymore. How long? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Here you go. Look, y'all, the simple point is this is that the Spirit is working with the Son and the Father to accomplish salvation. That's the only point that I wanted to make tonight. And again, there's a lot of people looking and going, I'm not sure what I think about this. Why would the Spirit do this just for the elect and not others? You're asking the exact same question that we would ask two weeks ago. It's the same issue. I'm simply trying to pitch at you that if one member of the Trinity is going to be in charge of salvation, the Trinity is going together. They're all on the same page and on the same team. Now look, one small little objection, then we'll go into the last point of Calvinism. Oftentimes, people continue to wrestle with this fact of saying, well, Les, if the Spirit's going to deal with who he's going to deal with, then why should we evangelize? In other words, when I sit in front of somebody and I'm talking about Christianity, and I look at them and say, you need to come to Christ, you need to repent, you need to sort of embrace Jesus as he's offered in the gospel, can I really do that sincerely if I don't know that the Spirit is working? Okay, And the answer is, of course it is. There is nothing that's inconsistent with the sincerity of the offer, um, there's, no, there's nothing inconsistent with the sincerity of the offer and the fact that God is going to work in whom He will. Because A, He commands us to make that offer, right? And B, we know that He's going to use even that person's refusal to bring about the, 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 the demonstration of His power and His justice. Again, we talked about two different things. One is to the praise of God's glorious justice. The other is to the praise of His mercy, doesn't make it all that much more palatable. I'm acknowledging that, but I simply want to offer that as uh, uh, as another offer is that, the, is that I've always suggested that it's uh, it means that we're going to uh, pay more attention to evangelizing. Why? Because I know that it's not up to my slick presentation to get people to become Christians. A lot of you are tied up in knots about this. You know what? I just don't know if I said the right thing to that person. Well, okay, well, let's talk about it. There's things that we can say and phrase better to sort of give a a good witness about the gospel to people, let's do that. But let's not all of a sudden put it on our backs what's responsible that only God can do. Does that make sense? Which is a nice lead into the last point of Calvinism. Then we'll have some time for questions. Um, The whole thing ends with the perseverance of the saints. Hey, this ought to be real simple at this point. Um, If I was unable, and God is the one who does everything, then I'm not able to mess that salvation up. In other words, what God began, he will be good to finish. And he will accomplish in you that no one can snatch them out of his hand. And we'll talk about some verses there. Look, y'all, let me deal with the cultural phenomenon. And it is sort of a phenomenon that's relatively recent. When I was a kid and I would go to evangelistic services. Now, some of you may have grown up in contexts uh, like this. But I remember getting to the end of the service when they would have an invitation. Okay? Okay. And it was basically always we started on the youth retreat with every head bowed, all eyes closed. Apparently that was the, the code. And what would happen is, is the pastor would make uh, some sort of invitation. The first invitation was typically to those who knew they were not Christians, knew they were not converted, but wanted to become Christians. And typically there was some prayer that was offered. If you want to become a Christian, if you're ready to face your sin and embrace Jesus, just pray this prayer after me. Have you ever been to a service like that, that walks through it? Okay. The second sort of uh, uh, offer that was given was for anybody in the room who wanted to um, think about going into the ministry as a vocation, except for the fact that when I was growing up, they called it full-time Christian service. You ever heard that phrase? Some people here might want to be involved in full-time Christian service, which was really a funny turn of phrase if you think about it now. Is there a part-time Christian service? You know, I'm a part-time Christian. I really take the weekends off. Uh, when it comes to the whole Christian thing. Um, But it was vocational ministry. That's what they were talking about. The third category, though, was people who wanted to rededicate their lives. Y'all ever heard of things like this? In other words, there was this whole idea that some of you out there, you know you're Christians, but you've been falling away. You've sort of gotten distracted. Maybe you sort of uh, uh, wrestled with some things. And so therefore, what you need to do is you need to have a time of rededication and so would there be some prayer that would be offered where if you sort of, you know, uh, doubting your salvation, if you're not sure about your salvation, then rededicate yourself to God. Now look, y'all, a couple thoughts about this. Um, <clears throat> I think that what pastors are dealing with when they make those kinds of offers is they're asking the question, how can I be assured that my salvation is real? How can I be assured that my salvation really is mine? I can tell people that I'm a Christian, but does that necessarily make me a Christian? Now, some of you are getting very defensive right now because you're kind of like, you can't start pointing the finger at who is and is not a Christian. I know, I know. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen at all. I'm simply talking about yourself, you, your own struggle with it. How can I have assurance that the Bible and the truth and the salvation that I claim to have owned is really my own. How can I know? How can I be certain in all of this? The, the fifth point of Calvinism creates an unbreakable chain that deals with assurance of salvation. But I want to simply pitch to you this. In my opinion, this is really the only way. In my opinion, Calvinism offers the only offer of real assurance By looking and saying, if God started it, he's going to finish it. And therefore, you're safe in him. If he has started the machinery of your salvation moving, you are safe in him. Um, Now look, there are a lot of people who reject the five points of Calvinism, who equally believe, and they'll use this little phrase, once saved, always saved. You've heard that phraseology before? Uh, Now, as a Calvinist, I happen to believe that's true though I think that phrase is poorly worded for reasons I'll get to in just a second. But the idea is being, well, if you were saved once, then you're always saved. But here's the problem. If there is something that was left up to me in my salvation, I can always doubt that. That's my premise. If there was still something left up to me in my salvation that was sort of contingent on my reaction to it, I'm going to mess it up, y'all. At age 43, I'm discovering that every chance that I get a chance, get I, that I get something, spiritually speaking, I foul it up. God has to intervene on my behalf. Look, y'all, one of the most, and we're going to get to these scripture passages here in just a second. Um, 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 but let me, let me do two illustrations. I had some friends of mine that were speaking to a person from a certain denomination that sort of openly rejected the five points of Calvinism, and really insisted that it was very much man's effort. But they were very consistent. Uh, and my friends were talking to this guy and trying to walk through some of the theological issues. And uh, it's really funny. I actually met with this guy today who had this conversation. This has been like 15 years ago. Um, weird. And, um, but anyway, as they were talking with this guy, this guy looked and said, uh, no, it's absolutely up to our choice to become a Christian. You know, God only sets the stage. You have to go and perform the act. And, of course, they looked and said, well, what do you do about assurance of salvation? And his response to him very boldly was, well, there is none. Just like you can choose your way into Christianity, you can turn right around and choose your way out of it. Again, the Calvinist comes riding in on a horse and says, whoa, 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 Tonto, okay? If you give me a chance to choose out of salvation, I'll do it every time. And guess what? Have done it often. And so the question becomes, does the Bible teach that theology? Okay? That basically it just depends on how you die. You ever thought about that? If you got right with God and rededicated your life and then you die, you're safe. But God forbid you could have chosen your way out of Christianity and then died and then you're done. Oops. Ah, we caught you on a downswing, right? You got to be on the upswing with me. You know, wherever you're headed at the end is where you're going forever. And my simple question is, is that what the Bible teaches? Look, y'all, we're wrestling with the question of assurance. And I remember my old, God rest his soul, uh, history of Christianity professor. We were talking about this on the way down to Jackson. I was in Jackson at a committee meeting all day today. And um, I was remembering my old history of Christianity professor. It was was Dr. Al Freund, an old German dude. Uh, And Dr. Freund used to sit up and he he actually would chew in tobacco during his lectures. He had this big cup. That he wanted to, I believe, was like coke or something, but it was not. It was just a big old wad of chew. And somebody looking, going, "A seminary professor chew, chew, and a banging? Yes, he's from a different generation. That's why he died uh, ten years ago. That's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> and he was a peculiar bird. But I remember Dr. Front one time saying, "Look, there are few questions that you will deal with more consistently in the life of your people that you talk with more than the question of how do I know that I'm really a Christian." And he said, the one thing that people are always going to be tempted to do when they ask that question is they're going to turn inward. That question, y'all, tends to drive us inward. And you all of a sudden start to look for whether or not you've jumped through enough hoops. And Dr. Freund said, look, the worst thing that you can do in looking to gain real peace with God is to look inside. Because that glance on the inside will always find treachery and problems. And the five points of Calvinism are, and I'm not blind, I'm not denying the fact that it's like nuclear strength theology, that mind numbing. I can't put this together in my mind how all this works out. Truths, but if it's true that nuclear strength salvation works in you know a desolation that is my own heart, okay. Look, let's th- let's take a couple. Of- I'm just going to throw these out there because I'm running out of time. Isaiah forty three one through three. This is what we sing in our song. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's why I love to sing that song. That song got very popular in the mid-90s when I first started to become a campus minister. You know, for I am the Lord your God. You know, when you walk through the fire, you're not going to get burned. When you walk through the, to the waters, you know, I'll, I'll be there with you. You know, for I have called you by name. I am the Lord. <laughs> Do you know who you're dealing with? This is me. I don't care what pops up in your heart. This is me. <laughs> That's awesome. Jeremiah thirty two forty. My steadfast love shall not depart from them. John six thirty five through forty. He who comes to me, I will not cast out. Right. John ten twenty seven through thirty. That uh, I know who are my own. Uh, and, uh, I, they, my sheep know their voice, and no one can snatch them from my hand. And I love that idea. Safe, secure in His reaches. Uh, in Romans chapter eight. It talks about those whom he called, he also uh, justified. Those whom he justified, he sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he will eventually glorify. In other words, he ain't going to begin something that he's not going to finish, right? Romans 8.35, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If God is for you, who is going to be against you? <laughs> if he is on your side, enemies be damned. You've got the ultimate person in your corner, right? Right? Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9, he will sustain you to the end. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 and 17, that the Lord Jesus will raise us on the last day. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, You were sealed until the day of salvation. Sealed. I like that. You were sealed up. It's done. It's it's, it's finished. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 28 talks about a kingdom that cannot be shaken. These poor Old Testament believers, they had to keep going back to the temple. More bloody sacrifices, more bloody sacrifices. But guess what? When Jesus comes, he does it once for all. So now it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, and in First Peter chapter 1, 3 through 3-5, it talks about uh, um, a word and a seed that's been planted that is not a perishable seed, but an imperishable seed because it comes from the very word of God. Look, y'all, I simply want to pitch to you that when you even take the most cursory glance of the Scripture— it does not say that we play this in game, out of game with the gospel. It just doesn't. Uh, you know, the scripture, I don't think, teaches it. Theologically, it doesn't make any sense. Think about this. You know, in Romans 11, verse 29, it says that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, they cannot be revoked, they cannot be taken back. Well, is there a greater gift that God has given to his people than the gift of salvation? It's Ephesians 2 8, 9. Right? For by grace you have been saved. There's the gift of God, not of ourselves. Therefore, God doesn't take back salvation. He does not look, grant salvation, like and be like, well, you clearly abused that. Well, I'll be taking that right back now. Sorry. He doesn't do that. That's not what the Bible says. In other words, God does not grant salvation on the basis of no merit on your own, but then all of a sudden take it back on the basis of some demerit in your life. Does that make sense? Y'all, this is huge, absolutely huge, and something that once you really get into it, really can be encouraging to you. Look, y'all, I want to throw out a couple last thoughts here uh, as as we finish with these ideas about assurance of salvation. First of all, let's acknowledge one simple application. It's possible to have false assurance. Is it possible, thus, for someone to think they're a Christian and for them not to be a Christian? And the answer is yes, of course it is. There are those who can believe that they're in possession of salvation and not. Those are pretenders. These are hypocrites. These are those who have, uh, who have, um, uh, who have b- put on a pretense of being Christians and are not. But look, y'all, just because there is an outward sort of expression does not mean that there's been an inward work of the Spirit. All right? Every person is, is, is responsible to sort of wrestle through those things on their own. I simply want to throw this out to you. That if you're wrestling with the question of how do I know if my assurance is false or not, you're not going to answer that question by going back and looking and focusing on what you've done. It's got to begin with something that He has done and finding yourself lost in His work on your behalf, right? Assurance of salvation was always pitched to me as, you know, nailing it down. I'd be at the youth retreat and people would say, you know what you need to do is you need to nail that salvation down. It's just wandering all over the thing, you know, nail it down. I think I've said this before and maybe even this Bible study that, you know, when I was a kid, I remember a guy coming up and encouraging me to write the date down on a piece on a block of wood or to scratch it into a block of wood and then go and drive that block of wood into the ground in my backyard. And the next time that I doubted my salvation, just go back and look at the stake that's there in the ground (laughs) and be encouraged that that was my salvation. Look, y'all, One of the reasons why false assurance happens is because people are not believing in Jesus, but they're believing in their believing. Why are you a Christian? Well, because I believed. No, 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 no. I said, why are you a Christian? Believing is the instrument of salvation. It is not the cause of salvation. In other words, believing is the means by which salvation will come to you, but it is not the thing that makes you a Christian. What made me a Christian was that the Son of God died 2,000 years ago on the cross. I I love to, that'll throw people off. Well, when did you become a Christian? Well, about 2,000 years ago, when a man who was God died on a cross, because I believe he had me in mind when he did. He was actively working to save me, looking out throughout the corridors of time and uh, drawing me to himself at that point. Look, y'all, the question is, what then are the signs of having a real peace with God how can I know that the peace that I have is something that's real? Uh, there's a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I actually, just un, uh, these little red volumes on the back of uh, Dare's head here uh, is where I got this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached uh, like for 10 years through the book of Romans. And when he got to the, the chapter 5, and he was talking about the doctrine of assurance. He mentioned five ways in which we can know that our peace is real. And he looks and says, first of all, you know that you have real gospel peace if you are at rest with your relationship with God. That I can look and say that he and I are on the same page. I'm resting in that. Number two, that you know God's love in spite of your sin. That I've come to believe that he actually does delight in screw ups like me. Number three, that you know how to answer your conscience. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? You ever had that moment where, and this always sounds weird whenever I say it, but you're having this conversation with yourself? And I literally there's one point where it's like, you know, you are just an idiot. You're an idiot. How could you do that? Isn't that funny how we talk to to ourselves in that way? What is that? That's our conscience rising up and wagging its finger at ourselves and condemning us. Our conscience. How can we have a cleansed conscience, right? Uh, The gospel gives us an answer to our conscience. Number four, you don't fear death and judgment. In other words, death and judgment, we understand, have been swallowed up. Why? Because somebody else died. Look, y'all, follow the logic of the gospel. We think that when we go to heaven, we're going to be going to God and be like, please, 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 oh, just be merciful to me. But look, y'all, y'all heard me say this before. That's not what we ask for when we get to heaven. Look, God knows that all sin deserves death. And God is looking for a payment for that sin. And if Jesus has died on the cross for your sin, that's the payment for that sin it would be now, brace yourselves, unjust for God to exact two payments for one offense. So if Jesus has already died for your sin, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See where Paul got that in Romans chapter 8 verse 1? There's nothing left. If he's already punished my stuff in him, I am free. And so I can look and say, I don't fear death and judgment because somebody's already died and somebody's already been judged. That's off the table. Fifthly and finally, you can know you have true peace if you can do all of these things even when you fall into grievous grievous sin. This is the real test. And I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this. He looks and says, if a man looks and says, because I have sinned, I've lost it. What he's really saying is, I always had it because I was good. Ooh, did you catch that? That went right by and you missed it because you're getting hot and tired. Bear with me. This is too good to miss this. When a man says, because I have sinned, I have lost my salvation, what he's really saying is, I actually had it because I was good. And Lloyd-Jones says, he was wrong on both counts. In his words, if we see that our justification is altogether and entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified, we must see that even though we fall into grievous sin, it is still true. That is huge. Even when you see junk coming up out of your life that you're like, I don't even know where that came from. And I know that God's not pleased with it. He's still not pleased with it. And I'll be honest with you, I'm trying. I'm trying to work through it, but I don't know if I'm ever going to get past this thing. Because it so haunts and dominates my conscience. That we can still, you'll know that you have true peace. You know that you have a nuclear strength salvation. If you can still look at those things and say, even in the face of that, even in the face of that, Jesus still died for that. Look y'all, what does that mean? What it means then is it puts us in a place where we know how to answer what's going on in our conscience. Is it possible? Is it possible that we are Fooling ourselves? Yes. But what is the best way to deal with that if we're fooling ourselves? The answer is to run to Jesus. Oftentimes I'll get people, after I do messages like this, who want to get together and meet, and they want to have lunch and say, I need to talk to you about this because I'm afraid that I'm one of those people. Other times I'll get people who want to talk to me and say, you know what, you're talking about salvation in a way in which I've never heard. I don't think I'm a Christian. Do you know I would say the same thing to both of those people? Whether tonight you absolutely know that you're not a Christian, or whether you wonder if you are and are not sure, I would say the exact same thing to you. Stop looking inside you, because joy will be a much better motivator than guilt and conscience. You go find Jesus and find out how great His salvation was and see if it doesn't answer the claims of your own conscience.